This week's episode is brought to you by Astra Nullius. Astra Nullius is a collection of free science fiction stories following the crew of the Starship Benevolence. The stories read to me like a combination of Firefly and Star Trek. If that combination excites you, then you want to check this out. If it doesn't excite you, well then, I truly do not understand you as a person. A new story comes out every month. The most recent came out two days ago, as of the day this podcast goes live. Go to the author's webpage, DemetriaSpinrad.com, to check it out. That's D-E-M-E-T-R-I-A-S-P-I-N-R-A-D.com to check it out. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 218, The Red Dawn, part 2. So I want to start today off with a reminder that this is not going to be a recap of the entire Allied expedition into the Russian Civil War. Such a series would be enormously complex and take us very far away from anything directly related to Japan. It would be fascinating at points but also involve a mind-boggling number of different factions and sides vying for power. That said, I think it is important to lay out at least the scope of the entire Allied intervention in brief before turning specifically to its Japanese contingent. So the allies of the Allied intervention were, of course, the allies of World War I, with the major players in that coalition being the United Kingdom, France, Italy, and the United States. But by 1918, three of those countries had seen their forces ravaged by four years of destructive war. I mean, it's important to remember that two million Frenchmen died during the First World War, which is more than every American casualty in every war the United States has ever fought combined. The Italians fought their own bloody war with Austria, and the British, of course, lost hundreds of thousands of their own as well. The high casualty levels, and more importantly, the perception that further casualties would be political suicide, did a lot to take the winds out of the sails of Allied intervention. Communism was, in the eyes of these governments, a dangerous ideological scourge, but that didn't change the fact that there just wasn't the will for a protracted, large-scale intervention. And so it was that the British sent maybe around a thousand troops total to intervene. Numbers vary depending on my sources, though they did, in the finest British tradition, order thousands of Canadians and Indians to join them as well. The Americans, relatively untouched by the war, sent 13,000 troops total. The Italians scraped together around 2,000. One of the largest contingents, surprisingly, came from a relatively minor Allied power, Greece around 20,000 troops sent to secure the Crimean Peninsula. All told, the overall force was pretty paltry. 
Remember, for the actual war in Europe going on at this point, the Allies were mobilizing millions of troops. By comparison, the couple thousand that they threw into the fight against communism was the military equivalent of the change you find in your sofa. Yet, that's also not very surprising. After all, only two of the major Allied powers had been spared years of brutal war. But this inability to commit large troop numbers for long periods of time probably doomed the intervention itself from the get-go. The small size of the intervention force, combined with the political fallout among neutral Russians who were peeved off by foreign influence in their own affairs, well, didn't do much for the cause. That small size also made it hard to say no to Prime Minister Terauchi Masatake, who went to the Allies in early 1918 with an offer. The initial plans for the intervention asked Japan to deploy around 7,000 troops to Siberia to back up the Americans. Terauchi, out of the generosity of his heart, offered to deploy far more than that. After some wrangling, the Allies agreed on 15,000 pairs of Japanese boots on the ground. Now you might think, what is there to negotiate about? For a force light on troops, a country willing to send more than it's being asked sounds like a godsend. Except that the Allies were keenly aware that Terauchi was not offering out of a sense of neighborliness to his allies. The Japanese plan in Russia from the get-go was pretty clearly not to restore the Russian Empire, but to deliberately fragment it in order to secure a buffer state against Russian influence. In fact, one of Terauchi's conditions for joining the intervention made this patently obvious. He refused to submit Japanese troops in Russia to command by other intervening powers, and instead insisted that Japanese troops would follow an independent chain of command. Terauchi excused this decision by saying that it would play poorly politically in Japan to have their troops commanded by foreigners but it was clear that his real rationale was to ensure that his troops were commanded by someone who shared his goals in Russia. Indeed, General Mitsue Yui, the Japanese commander on the scene, went beyond his remit as part of the expeditionary force almost immediately, and did so under orders from General Staff Chief Uehara and the Prime Minister. The Japanese, you see, were, according to the plan, to secure the crucial city of Vladivostok, with help from the Americans, and then link up with another American force to secure the all-important Trans-Siberian Railway. However, they were not to advance any further than that. The plan for the Japanese and Americans was to hold Vladivostok open as a base for pro-white Russian forces, but not to directly intervene themselves, and both the Japanese and the Americans were supposed to promise that they would not intervene in Russia's internal affairs. The Japanese government had initially announced its plan to participate in this endeavor on August 2, 1918, and made the case for intervention in sweepingly internationalist terms. No enemy for the Japanese to fight was named, not even the Bolsheviks. No declaration of war was issued. Instead, there was simply a declaration that Japan would act to help restore order in Russia in the name of world peace. That internationalist rhetoric enjoyed wide support in Japan itself. In particular, the political parties and intellectual class of the country both supported intervention as long as intervention was linked to British and American efforts. Yoshino Sakuzo, a historian and politician of that era, 
summed up the popular response when he said that intervention would allow Japan to grow closer to the British and Americans, and that in turn would make Japan a top-tier world power. However, such a limited and cooperative role was not what the Japanese army planners responsible for implementing the intervention had in mind. Japanese troops arrived in Vladivostok in force on August 15th as a part of this official intervention. Prior to that, the Japanese presence was limited to two cruisers and some marines. Eight days later, the commanders on the scene decided to move past their initial area of operations and dispatch part of a division as far as the Transbaikal region. Transbaikal is the region on the eastern side of Lake Baikal, north of Mongolia. If you're not too familiar with Russian geography, that's well beyond Vladivostok. Now, the justification for this move was to support Czech forces that were engaging Bolsheviks in the region. However, the actual, if unstated, goal was to secure Japanese influence over the whole of the Russian Far East. The Japanese also moved troops within their sphere of influence in Manchuria to the Russian border, in a move not directly related to the Siberian expedition, but clearly intended to support moves in Siberia itself. Prime Minister Terauchi also almost immediately violated one of the provisos of the intervention agreement by escalating Japanese troop commitments in the region to greater and greater heights. By the start of 1919, four months after the intervention officially began, 70,000 Japanese troops had been dispatched to the region, and remember, the initial commitment was supposed to be 15,000 at most, and the Americans had wanted about half that number to start with. Very early on, then, the internationalist pretense of Japanese involvement in Siberia was dropped quickly, and that actually presented a unique problem because of the nature of Japan's political system. This uniquely Japanese political problem started in late July 1918 with rice shortages caused in part by the need to supply forces in Siberia. As a result of those shortages, riots began to crop up in many of Japan's major cities. In the ensuing month and a half of on-again, off-again riots, 25,000 people were arrested. The rice riots of 1918 have their own complex causes. The need to supply the Siberian intervention was only a part of the larger roots of the conflict. Yet the riots had a tremendous impact on the Siberian expedition. You see, one of the rioters' demands was the resignation of the existing cabinet for its failure to provide food for the people. And in September of 1918, only a month into the main thrust of the Siberian expedition, Prime Minister Terauchi bowed to the inevitable. He offered his resignation to the emperor, and it was accepted. Now, in the long term, this will end up destroying Terauchi's career, but in the short term the task of choosing a replacement for the disgraced Prime Minister was left. And practically speaking, there was only one man who could win back the confidence of the common people, the great party politician Hara Takashi. And so it was that Hara, who had supported the parts of the intervention that enjoyed the blessings of the Allies, but opposed a broader attempt to destabilize or seize Siberia, became the Prime Minister of Japan. This was a seismic political shift. Hara was the first prime minister chosen explicitly because he was the head of the largest party in the Diet, and he began a new political tradition of elected prime ministers and Diet control over politics 
that would last until 1932. For our purposes now, what's important is that the man now in charge of the government leading the Siberian expedition objected to the very nature of the Siberian expedition. And yet there wasn't precisely anything Hara could do about it. Japan's constitution gave the military something called the prerogative of supreme command, essentially meaning that the military operated independently of the civilian government. The prime minister was not the supreme commander of the army and navy in the way that, say, the U.S. president is the supreme commander of America's military. Instead, that position fell to the emperor. This was intended to insulate the military from civilian politics, but it also meant that the military was practically impossible to restrain, because as a practical matter, the emperor basically never exercised his command authority. Which led, for example, to the darkly hilarious specter of a military engaged in a foreign policy diametrically opposed to the actual foreign policy of the government in Tokyo. The precise situation that Hara faced, and one that would be oddly familiar to his successors in the 1930s. The 70,000 Japanese troops in Siberia were operating in an unsanctioned role, unsanctioned even by their own government. That made the issue of coordinating with their white Russian allies rather thorny, because that kind of foreign policy was technically supposed to be under the control of the Tokyo government. Not that the allies were terribly well coordinated, mind you. Recall that the Japanese had two key allies among the white Russians. The first was Admiral Alexander Kolchak, who, by November 16, 1918, was operating a government of a sorts out of the Russian city of Omsk that claimed to be in command of all white Russian forces. Kolchak was, in many ways, the worst kind of ally. He was a combination of self-confident and overbearing that alienated many of his own allies. For example, many of Russia's ethnic minority groups were willing to cooperate with the white Russians against the Bolsheviks, but wanted a greater degree of local independence from central government rule in exchange. They wanted a sort of federated Russian empire. Kolchak flatly refused what was, honestly, a pretty reasonable offer, believing that such a change would be the first step to the outright dissolution of the Tsar's empire. Kolchak also clamped down hard on labor unions and leftist but not Bolshevik groups that probably otherwise would have been happy to work with him against Lenin's very narrow definition of communist ideology. As a result, Kolchak's actual authority over white Russian forces in the field was very limited, and in particular his authority over the Russian Far East was practically non-existent. The relationship between Kolchak and the Japanese intervention forces was actually pretty antagonistic. Kolchak was displeased with the independent nature of the Japanese operation in the Far East, which he viewed as practically an invasion of Russian territory, and the Japanese, for their part, considered Kolchak, not inaccurately, to be completely ineffective as a ruler, and attempted to exclude his actual authority from the Far East. Equally important, if not more so, for the Japanese was their Cossack ally, Grigory Semenov, who, on the eve of the Russian Revolution, was in the Transbaikal region recruiting a new Cossack regiment. Without missing a beat, Semenov turned his regiment against the Bolsheviks in the region, but local communist forces turned out to be a match for his fresh recruits, 
and he lost his initial battle and had to flee to the Chinese city of Harbin in Manchuria. After a few months to lick his wounds, Semenov returned to the Transbaikal, this time with help from Czechoslovak troops who had actually been fighting on the Imperial Russian side of World War I against Austria-Hungary, which at the time ruled Czechoslovakia. Those Czechoslovak troops were thus embroiled in the war in Russia. The Czech troops were led by a fierce anti-communist leader named Michael Dietrichs, and with his help, Semenov was able to secure the Transbaikal and set himself up as its new leader. In this, he was also aided by a fortunate coincidence of his own heritage. The region has a decently high Mongol population, and Semenov himself was descended from a branch of the Mongols called the Buryats. As a result, he was able to present himself as a local rather than an outsider imposing his will. Semenov's regime in the Transbaikal was avowedly anti-communist, but Semenov himself had a hard time playing nice with the rest of the white Russian government. Partially, this was a result of flat-out racism in the Russian high command. Semenov, a Cossack, was not ethnically Russian, and had been looked down on for most of his career as a result. The Cossacks had a nasty and frankly pretty racist reputation as brutal enforcers of the Tsar's will, tools in the imperial arsenal that had to be guided by wise Russian hands to be put to their best use. So Semenov's leadership was often called into question by his ostensible allies. Partially the issue was also one of Alexander Kolchak's own stubbornness. Remember, he did not play nice with the other children, and as a result was generally unwilling to give any of his subordinates, including Semenov, real room to be independent in their actions. Partially, the issue stemmed from Semenov's own behavior. He had a reputation as a brutal war leader and something of a bandit, who funded his anti-communist operations by ruthlessly exploiting the population under his control, and by raiding supplies from pretty much everyone who wasn't him, including his own allies. Of course, that depiction of Semenov as a bandit chief owes a lot to Russian stereotypes about Cossacks as horseback bandits, so it's hard to be sure how grounded it was in reality, but still, that reputation did make it hard to find people who were willing to cooperate with Semenov. Still, all of this was to the good for the Japanese under the control of their local commander, Mitsue Yui. After all, Divided Russian leadership made it that much easier to undermine the authority of the central Russian government and carve off the Far East for Japanese ends. Throughout 1918-1919, this was precisely the policy of the Imperial Japanese Army. Support local leaders like Grigory Semenov and his fellow Cossacks, who I haven't talked about. Semenov is the best-known Cossack warlord to cooperate with the Japanese, but he had plenty of company and at the same time, undercut the authority of the central government of Alexander Kolchak, cooperate only to the extent absolutely necessary. Now again, this was not the foreign policy of the government in Tokyo. In fact, Prime Minister Haratakashi held more or less the opposite policy to be the correct one for Russia. The goal was to work closely with the Kolchak government to prove that Japan could be a responsible member of the Club of Great Powers. To that end, Hara spent most of the next two years actually trying to pull troops out of Siberia. He wanted to force a troop drawdown because with fewer soldiers to command, the local Japanese commanders would be forced to cooperate with the central government 
rather than trying to undermine it. Hara used budgetary wrangling, cutting expenditures for intervention in Siberia, to force a partial withdrawal of Japanese forces in December 1919. By then, Japanese forces on the ground were cut to a mere 25,000. He also used his control over foreign policy to hand over control of a crucial piece of infrastructure, the Trans-Siberian Railway. Just like it sounds, this is a railway, initially built under the Tsars, that connects European Russia to the far-flung territories of Siberia. The Japanese had seized control of this rail line during their move into Siberia, but Hara arranged to hand over control of the railway to an international panel of intervening powers led by the Kolchak government. In the short term, this had a huge tactical impact. In particular, the Czechoslovak forces in the Far East had access to one of the great weapons of war of World War I, an armored combat train designed to rapidly move into position and blast enemies with powerful artillery fire. The international panel cleared the armored train for use on the Trans-Siberian Railway, providing some much-needed firepower for anti-Bolshevik forces not directly connected to the Japanese. However, these moves by the Hara government were not enough to undermine the army's goals in Siberia. Directives from Tokyo were routinely ignored on the ground. Working under the implicit permission of the army general staff, which publicly denounced these actions but privately supported them, the Japanese army armed and equipped leaders like Semenov, who opposed the central Kolchak government, and worked to undermine Kolchak's control of the Russian Far East. Honestly, the degree to which early on the Japanese were even fighting the Bolsheviks rather than the whites is pretty unclear. The army was far more concerned with taking control of Siberia than it was with helping to stem the Red Tide. By the end of 1919, then, the intervening Allied powers were working at substantial cross-purposes. As the Japanese pursued two different foreign policies in the region, one endorsed by the Prime Minister, the other by the Army General Staff, the Americans angled to block Japanese control of the Far East by putting diplomatic pressure on Japan, and the British were concerned primarily with trying to stabilize European Russia and cared little about Asia. And of course, poor Alexander Kolchak down in his capital in Omsk was just trying to hold on to what he had as best he could. As the armistice that ended World War I was turning into a final peace treaty, the situation in Russia remained, well, rather chaotic. Made even worse by the fact that once the war ended, the Czechoslovak troops withdrew from Russia, returning to their newly liberated homeland of Czechoslovakia to help rebuild. Meanwhile, it was becoming increasingly clear that the Whites could not stop the Reds. By early 1919, the Bolsheviks had solid control of European Russia, as key European cities like Tsaritsyn, the future Stalingrad, fell to the Soviets. Kolchak's government planned a counterattack for the spring of 1919, in which white Russian troops would try to push all the way back into European Russia, and they did enjoy initial success. But by summer 1919, the Red Army had defeated Kolchak's initial attack and was launching attacks of its own. As it turns out, appointing an admiral as your supreme commander in a war that takes place mostly on land, not a great call. By late June, the Red Army had broken through the mountain chain called the Urals, which separates European Russia from Asian Russia. 
This was one of the last major geographic barriers protecting the white Russian capital at Omsk. By the fall, Kolchak was forced to withdraw from Omsk and flee toward Siberia. However, winter weather and technical delays slowed his train, and as a result, by the time he reached his destination, Irkutsk, near Lake Baikal, the city had fallen to a local pro-Bolshevik uprising. Kolchak was imprisoned, and in early January 1920, he was executed by firing squad. Kolchak's slow burn collapse during the second half of 1919 took the wind out of the sails of most of the Allies. His failure, and the loss of the western half of Russia, seemed to suggest the inevitability of Bolshevik victory. As a result, the Americans and British both began to discuss withdrawal from Siberia. In October 1919, the Americans in particular informed the British of their intent to withdraw from Siberia. In January 1920, they made that intention public. That decision, made in the interests of American policy, had huge ramifications in Japan. You see, the Hara cabinet had been debating how to respond to the reversal of fortune for the whites, but had delayed making any formal decision on what to do until it was clear what the American and British response would be. From October 1919 onward, the Hara cabinet regularly requested updates from the Americans in particular on what the plan was going forward. Are we trying to stop the Bolsheviks at Yurkutsk, or fall back to a different defensive line, or are we packing up and going home? The Americans, despite the fact that they had a plan, didn't bother to tell the Japanese what it was. The Japanese didn't find out about the American intent to withdraw from Siberia until January, just a few days before the public announcement, when a local American commander mentioned it to his Japanese counterpart, believing that the Japanese already knew. As a result of this failure to coordinate, Hara ended up in a really bad situation. Unlike literally all the other allies, he shared a land border with the Soviets. The Russian town of Vladivostok bordered directly on Japanese-occupied Korea, and of course, Manchuria was not exactly a stable place in 1920 with the slow burn collapse of the Republic of China. That meant that his government, more so than any other, was under direct threat from the Bolsheviks, and so Hara did not want to just hand over Russia to them. That's why he supported joint intervention. But now that intervention was ending. And so Hara made a politically unpopular decision. If he could not get help to hold Siberia, then he would order the army to do it themselves. He would support a continued presence in Siberia in the hopes of blocking the Bolshevik advance in protecting Korea and Manchuria from Bolshevik influence. Mind you, he was not willing to commit indefinitely. Instead, the increase was meant to stabilize the region to prepare for Japanese withdrawal, basically to buy time during which maybe some kind of stable white Russian government could be set up, or at least during which defenses could be set around Japan proper. But this was still a big step for a man who had previously opposed unilateral action and who was now pushing for a move that was deeply politically unpopular in Japan itself, where few average voters saw value in a conflict as remote as the one in Siberia. How that plays out, we'll see next week. For now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Christoph Lowe for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out our new podcast webpage 
at isaacmeyer.net. That's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net. Or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the Red Dawn, the third and final part.